<coughs> Today is the sixth day of our summer seven-day session. It's the 12th of January 2018. And we're going to take up a story today um, from the um, Terigata. Uh, this is in our continuing series of, of um, uh, stories about uh, women uh, practitioners, teachers, masters. And we're taking this one, it doesn't appear in the usual book we've been using, The Hidden Lamp. So we're taking this from one of the books that was a source for the Hidden Lamp stories. It's called The First Buddhist Women, Translations and Com Commentaries on the Terigata by Susan Murcott. And um, some of you will have heard me talk about this this collection before. Gave a couple of tasters on it fairly recently. Um, it is a collection of uh, verses, gata, um, by uh, female elders who lived at the time of the Buddha. So, and it's teri, um, um, means means female elder. Um, so it's um, often there the the verses will be enlightenment verses, but not always. And there are different um, genres and styles of poem in this collection, and that the one we, the one we're going to look at um, today is a dialogue poem. So it's got um, it's got different voices, two voices, that of uh, Vajira and of Mara. Um, so a little bit about these two uh, protagonists. We don't know much about Vajira and, and I don't I didn't have access to um, sources to see if there was other information so for today all we get from from this is um, what we get from her her words and and clearly she's she's well versed in the teachings um, but we can't really say much more about it than that um, the other character here is Mara um, and sometimes Mara is, is referred to as the Buddhist devil. Um, his name, this name Mara, actually literally means murder or destruction. Um, you could say he's a personification of all our, our delusions, our blind passions. Um, you could even say he's like the principle of destruction. It actually, in this verse, he's called uh, death. Sometimes also the evil one. But he's called death because um, he takes away our wisdom life, our true life. He often in these in these um, poems takes the role of a, of a tempter or a thwarter of uh, our spiritual um, evolution. And it, it makes it makes sense um, to call Mara death. Um, because in, in a sense it's our notion of being separate which is what Mara personifies, 
um, that gives rise to death. We're like, we're like waves on the ocean of true nature and um, death of that, of, in those individual waves on that ocean only makes sense from the point of view of one little wave that's seeing itself as separate from all the other waves. From, from the point of view of the ocean itself, there's just the rising and falling of water. Ocean. So here, here's the dialogue. And the first, the first the speaker is Mara, and then uh, Vajira responds. Who put this living being together? Where is the maker? Where does this being come from? Where will it end? Vajira replies, What's this being you go on about? That's your delusion. We're nothing but the skandhas. There's no being to be found here. It's like this. A certain combination of parts is called by the name chariot. So with the skandhas, the elements of mind and body, it's common usage to say a being. It is suffering that exists, suffering that endures, suffering that disappears. Nothing but suffering exists, nothing but suffering comes to an end. Then Mara, death himself, thought, Vajira knows me, and, sad and dejected, vanished. So we start off with this Mara's four questions. Who put this living being together? Where is the maker? Where does this being come from? Where will it end? All of these questions um, center around their being a being. And in this, in this sense, they're beside the point. And they also, in their, the way they're formulated, um, who put this being together? Where is the maker? Where does this being come from? Where will it end? Um, it is the questions taking, a, taking us away from what is right in front of us into this realm of uh, before and after, which is a, which is a realm of, of speculation, of abstractions. The Buddha emphasized the necessity of our asking the right questions He, he um, told a well-known, uh, now well-known story of uh, a man pierced by an arrow. He's lying, lying on the ground with, the, with pain, the arrow sticking out of him. And the Buddha said, well, you don't at that point 
ask what kind of wood the shaft of the arrow was made from, or who the fletcher was who made the arrow, or what kind of feathers were used in, in it, or, or what was the tip? Was it, was it stone or was it metal? Well, you just, these questions are not questions for this moment. What you do is you, you examine the wound and you carefully remove the arrow and, and address the injury that it caused. That's, that's what's important in that moment. So Myra's question that um, invite, invites speculation. But Vajira is not, is not um, fooled by these questions and she, she comes back strongly and challenges Mara. What's this being you go on about? That's your delusion. We're nothing but the skandhas. There's no being to be found here. So um, these, these skandhas, um, may hear this term quite often, but they need, they need a bit of um, unpacking. Literally, this word skanda uh, means heap, like, like a pile of something, a pile of sand or a pile of gravel. Usually it's um, translated as aggregates, stuff that's gathered together. And there are five of these skandhas, and they're, con they're considered to make up our, our so-called being or personality. And they are um, form or rupa, feeling, vedana, sometimes translated as, as sensation, uh, perception, Samjna, in volitional formations, this one is the most widely, different, different translations for it, but we're going to use volitional formations, samskara, and finally uh, consciousness, vijnana, and here we're referring to discriminating consciousness, ego consciousness. It takes, it takes uh, I found it hard to sort of wrap my ra mind around these um, and it, it helps to, to recognize that they're overlapping, that they, in, in some sense, they're, they all rise together and they're aspects of, of each other. So you can't um, separate, completely separate out um, feelings from form, the body, or um, volitional formations from consciousness. So they're like, they're like different ways of looking at the same thing from different angles. 
how we can simplify them down, boil them down to body and mind. But the most important thing to understand about them are that they elicit from us attachment. In fact, they're sometimes called the aggregates of attachment. Upadana skanda. Probably the most obvious one is how attached we are to our body, how much we identify with it. But also, of course, our opinions, our ideas, our, what we think to be right and wrong. These things we also can very fiercely attach to. Or the other side to, to uh, have aversion towards. There may be aspects of ourself, our habits, which would come under samskara or volitional formations that we may really um, dislike. And so we, we uh, direct a lot of aversion towards them. These skandhas are sometimes also um, called the perishing collection. Because char the characteristics of the skandhas are birth, old age, duration, and change. So they're always perishing and reforming. You can imagine um, f f five heaps of, of sand and wind, a strong wind. So these, the heaps always being shifted around like sand dunes and bits of sand from one blowing onto another, changing shape. They don't have um, an essence. You can't dig down through a pile of sand and find uh, something fixed. It's, it's shifting and moving all the way down. So this is, um, this is and the teaching is called anatman, no self, no essence, no abiding, permanent, reality, or entity, rather. They're also impermanent, as we've already been saying, anicca, or anitya in, in Sanskrit. They're empty. They don't have any, any abiding um, characteristics. And because we attach to them, they're full of suffering. Dukkha. A little bit more about these skandhas. Um, this is from the Encyclopedia of Eastern Philosophy and Religion. And it's just going a little bit into each of these um, skandhas and saying a little bit more about them. The aggregate of corporeality, form or matter, this is the first one, rupa, 
is composed of the four elements, and, and this is earth, air, fire and water, which is another way of saying um, the solid, gaseous, um, the heat, heat and movement. It also includes the sense orga organs and their objects. So um, my, my eyes and something that I see are included in this rupa. So it's, it's more than just the body in the narrow sense. It's matter as well, things, objects. The second one, the sensation aggregate or, or the feeling aggregate consists of all sensations, unpleasant, pleasant or neutral. And all, if you think about it, all our, our sensations fall into one of these three categories. So that's, that's the Vedana. Pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, and neutral sensations. And the next one, uh, Samjna, perception, includes um, our perceptions of Form, sound, smell, taste, um, body, bodily um, touch, and and um, thinking as well. So, what we, how we perceive these things. So, adding adding another layer on top of just a direct feeling of something, then having a perception about it, a th um, think a thought concept. The aggregate of mental formations, um, also sometimes translated as mental impulses or volitions, includes the majority of mental activities such as attention, discrimination, joy, happiness, equanimity, resolve, exertion, and compulsion, concentration, big long list. So it's, uh, mental formations or volitional formations capture it. So it's all our, all our tendencies, our habits, our uh, emotions come under this heading. The consciousness aggregate includes the six types of consciousness. So we had, we had eyes and the things we see and all the other senses under form, the first of these. But for each of those, there's also a consciousness. So there's a seeing consciousness, a hearing consciousness, and so forth. And these come under the heading of this final one, um, number five, or mental consciousness, or consciousness, rather. And these all arise out of, these consciousnesses arrive out of the contact between our eye and a visual object, our hearing and sound objects, and so forth. So they're conditioned by those. Goes on, the characteristics of suffering and impermanence of the five skandhas form a central theme of Buddhist literature. Suffering is based on impermanence and transitoriness. From the impermanence of the, imp of the personality composed of the five skandhas, Buddhism derives the absence of a self, anatman. Whatever is characterized by impermanence and thus suffering cannot constitute a self since this entails permanence and freedom from suffering. 
the knowledge of the inessentiality of the skandhas already contains the insight that leads to liberation. And this is really the, at the core of uh, Vajira's response. She, she's um, coming back to Mara. There's all this stuff about being. It's all insubstantial. There's no basis to it. We chant about this every time we do the um, Heart Sutra. The Bodhisattva of compassion from the depths of Prajna wisdom saw the emptiness of all five skandhas and sundered the bonds that cause all suffering. Know then, form here is only emptiness, emptiness only form. Form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. Feeling, thought and choice, consciousness itself are the same as this. So here it takes the first, um, in the Heart Sutra, it takes the first of the five skandhas, form, and, and um, tells us that form is only emptiness, and emptiness only form. And it's the same for the other four, it goes on to say. Here they say feeling, thought and choice, what would you say, feeling, perception and volitional formations doesn't scan very well. So it was, it was shortened to feeling, thought and choice. Consciousness itself are the same as this. They're all empty. They're all insubstantial, impossible to grasp. Master Shingyan says a little bit about this in his commentary on the Heart Sutra, which is called There Is No Suffering, which we say a little bit later in our version, there is no pain or cause of pain or cease in pain or noble path to lead from pain, not even wisdom to attain. So they're saying not even, not even the, the um, Four Noble Truths have a have a solid basis. But here's what um, Master Shingyan says. The Heart Sutra speaks from the standpoint of the Mahayana idea of ultimate emptiness. The Buddha says that the five skandhas are not separate from emptiness, that they are indeed empty. Form is emptiness because it does not exist in a definite, enduring location, nor does it have an enduring shape or appearance. Forms, whether atoms or planets, interdependently exist and interact with all other forms. This is the only way we can know of their existence. If something had an eternal, unchanging, independent nature, it would never react with anything else, and hence we would never become aware of its existence. So as soon as we're interacting with something, we're relating to it, therefore it, it can't be absolute. 
it is it is affected by us it, therefore it's 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 relative uh, when we interact with something that that something changes and we change this is dependent co-arising or interbeing as Thich Nhat Hanh so vividly called it our lives are fleeting you may think 80 years is a long time but it is not time is also relative a hundred-year-old may see a seventy-year-old as a youth but if it were a parent-child relationship and the child died first the parent would still think it was too soon it's even if the child was seventy in our practice we reflect that our bodies our mental activities and the environment constantly change and that therefore they are empty this is true for all five skandhas not just form if you directly experience this truth even for an instant your grip on your sense of self will loosen as attachment to a sense of self diminishes so too does suffering in fact we all suffer because we do not truly perceive the emptiness of the five skandhas so we attach to this perishing collection these shifting sands and we suffer because they're always shifting they, they can't be relied upon the degree to which we can um, loosen our grip diminish our, our attachment to these these um, shifting sands there we will be relieved of our suffering we all suffer because we do not truly perceive the emptiness of the five skandhas we can practice complement uh, we can practice contemplating the emptiness of the five skandhas at any time it is not limited to sitting meditation however if you do not meditate and study the dharma it will be difficult to practice such a method in daily life after the phrase form is not other than emptiness it is of crucial importance to add and emptiness is not other than form it affirms that the emptiness is precisely the five skandhas armed only with the first insight people might develop a negative attitude toward life and a false view of emptiness they might feel there is no need for responsibilities and forget their families their jobs and their health after all if everything is empty what would be the point of caring about or doing anything this however is illusory emptiness the relationship between form and emptiness is understood this way in the midst of the five skandhas there is emptiness and in the midst of emptiness there are the five skandhas however one needs the wisdom of direct experience to truly understand this form is emptiness but emptiness is also form indeed everything is empty 
but emptiness is wonderful existence. Everything is emptiness, but emptiness is wonderful existence. It is precisely because our existence is illusory that we can experience enlightenment and help others to do the same. For this reason, emptiness is not other than form is more important to understand than form is not other than emptiness. In that the workings of the five skandhas are the full display of emptiness. The five skandhas do have a conventional existence. Our bodies are illusory, but we will suffer if we do not care for them. Food is illusory, but we'll starve if we do not eat it. Our activities are illusory, but only through activity can we help others. For this reason, there is action in the midst of emptiness, and because of this, we should remain active and positive and avoid nihilism. It's important to remember this in terms of avoiding nihilism and also for perhaps um, mitigating this, the sense of, of dread we might have about facing emptiness. We may think of it as some kind of black void, an absence, terrifying abyss, when in fact it's um, it's a, a living matrix, sometimes referred to as the viable void. It's like a, like a, a womb out of which everything arises. It makes possible all the forms that we experience. So going back to our, our verse, so Vajira has, has um, uh, scoffed at, at uh, Mara's emphasis on, on being. And then she gives this um, analogy. She says, it's like this. A certain combination of parts is called by the name chariot. So with the skandhas, the elements of mind and body, it's common usage to say a being. Now this chariot image here, it's quite, it's quite brief here, just a reference to it, um, fairly telegraphic. It may be that um, She's assuming that people are familiar with this teaching. Perhaps it was, a, it was current at the time, so it was a, perhaps it was an image that the Buddha had used himself. Though later, uh, there's, a, there's a text that comes later that refers to Vajira as the, as the actual source of this teaching. But um, this later text also helps us to, to kind of um, unfold uh, this image of the of the chariot, chariot, and this later text is called the Melinda Panha, or the Questions of King Melinda, and it's it's a Pali text from early Buddhism, um, 
but perhaps after the canon had been gathered. And maybe be for this reason that it's not usually included in the canons of the different um, uh, Pali schools, except in the Burmese one. Um, but it's still considered to be an important text, and it's a useful, important one for us particularly, because the protagonist, or one of the main protagonists in this, in this uh, uh, dialogue, it's another dialogue, is Melinda, or uh, Menander, to use the Greek form of his name. And he, w he was a king um, who came in into contact with, with Buddhism, um, but he was uh, Greek. And so his concerns um, and his questions come out of his Greek culture, and so we can relate particularly strongly to them. We're only going to look at a fragment of the text, but it's, it's uh, recommended as, as um, one of the uh, Pali Sutras that's really helpful to read. And so he has questions about the Dharma, um, and, it, and it's said that he um, liked to engage in debate with philosophers and sages, and he was, he was skillful at this. He was king of, um, of, of what was known then as Bactria. We have a, uh, we refer to Bactrian camels still, so they, they came from this area. And he ruled around um, 160 to 130 before the Common Era. And his kingdom was quite large. It included um, uh, several present-day countries in, the, in their entirety, uh, what we call now Turkmenistan, also Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and even parts of Pakistan. So it's roughly the same area um, that later became known as Gandhara. Um, which out of which came such some extraordinary artworks, Buddhist artworks, including including um, the first sculptures of the Buddha, which contain I can you can see these in in museums um, some elements that come from Greek art, the the drapery in the in the figures, and um, some some images seem to have been modelled on ones of Apollo, of the Buddha. So if we go to this text, it, it, it helps us to um, understand this, this more fully, this image of the cart. And just as a sort of preamble, um, basically there, there are some arhats who go to a um, a Buddhist uh, Ahat uh, Nagasena teacher and say, say basically say this clean king Melinda is is bothersome. He keeps on harassing us and with questions and counter questions. And uh, please, can you go and sort him out? And so Nag Nagasena agrees to do this and says, no problem, I'll sort him out. And um, then they have this, this long exchange of, of question and answer. And, and um, in every, in every, um, with every question, Nagasena manages to, to express the Dharma in a way that um, 
Melinda understands and accepts. And so this, the chariot portion of it is just one part. So um, King Melinda asks him, and so this happens at the beginning of their exchange, how is your reverence known and what is your name, sir? Nagasena replies, as Nagasena I am known, O great king, and as Nagasena do my fellow religious habitually address me. But although parents gave names such as Nagasena, Surasena, Virasena or Sihasena, nevertheless this word Nagasena is just a denomination, a designation, a conceptual turn, a current appellation, a mere name. For no real person can here be apprehended. And King Melinda kind of snorted at this. Um, now listen, you 500 Greeks and 80,000 monks. So it's said to be in the, in the audience of this, there were um, 80,000 monks. We can guess it's a little bit of an exaggeration. Now listen, you 500 Greeks and 80,000 monks. This Nagasena tells me he's not a real person. How can I be expected to agree with that? And to Nagasena he said, If, most reverent Nagasena, no person can be apprehended in reality, who then, I ask you, gives you what you require by way of robes, food, lodging and medicines? Uh, he can be surely have been asking him too, well, who am I giving it to? I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be getting merit from this. Who is it that guards morality, practices meditation, and realizes the four paths and their fruits, and thereafter nirvana? So, who are our hearts, essentially? And then, who is it that, are, that killing living beings takes what is not given, commits sexual misconduct, tells lies, drinks intoxicants? Who is it that commits the five deadly sins? So he's asking about, about karma. If, if, if there's no such thing as a person, then who commits good and bad deeds and who reaps the consequences of them? For if there were no person, there could be no merit and no demerit, no doer of meritorious or demeterious deeds, and no agent behind them, no fruit of good and evil deeds, and no reward or punishment for them. You just told me that your fellow religious habitually address you as Nagasena. Then what is this Nagasena? Are perhaps the hairs of the head Nagasena? No great king. Or perhaps the nails, teeth, skins, muscles, sinews, bones, marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, serous membranes, spleen, lungs, intestines, mesentery, stomach, excrement, the bile, phlegm, pus, blood, grease, fat, tears, sweat, spittle, snot, fluid of the joints, urine, or the brain in the skull. Are they this Nagasena? No, great king. Or is Nagasena a form, or feelings, or perceptions, or mental formations, or consciousness? So he's bringing in the five skandhas here. No, great king. Then is it the combination of form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness? No, great king. 
then is it outside the combination of forms, feelings, perceptions, um, initial, initial formations and consciousness? No great king. So it's not these, a combination of these things and it's not outside these things. So he's now getting really stumped. He says, and then, ask as I may, I can, never, I can discover no Nagasena at all. This Nagasena is just a mere sound. But who is the real Nagasena? Your reverence has told a lie, has spoken a falsehood. There is really no Nagasena. Thereupon the venerable Nagasena said to King Melinda, As a king you have been brought up in great refinement, and you avoid roughness of any kind. If you would walk at midday on this hot burning and sandy ground, then your feet would have to tread on the rough and gritty gravel and pebbles, and they would hurt you, your body would get tired, your mind impaired, impaired and your awareness of your body would be associated with pain. How then did you come? On foot or on a mount? I did not come, sir, on a foot or a mount, but in a chariot. If you have come in a chariot, then please explain to me what a chariot is. Is it the pole of the chariot? No, reverend sir. Is it the axle? Is the axle the chariot? No, reverend sir. Is it then the wheels, or the framework, or the flagstaff, or the yoke, or the reins, or the goad stick? No, reverend sir. Then is it the combination of axle, wheels, framework, flagstaff, yoke, reins, and goad, which is the chariot? No, reverend sir. Then is this chariot outside the combination of poke, axle, wheels, framework, flagstaff, yoke, reins and goad. No, reverend sir. Then, ask as I may, I can discover no chariot at all. This chariot is just a mere sound. But what is the real chariot? Your majesty has told a lie, has spoken a falsehood. There is really no chariot. Your majesty is the greatest king in the whole of India. Of whom then are you afraid that you do not speak the truth? And he exclaimed, Now listen, you 500 Greeks and 80,000 monks. This King Melinda tells me, that his, the, he tells me that he has come on a chariot, but when asked to explain to me what a chariot is, he cannot establish its existence. How can one possibly approve of that? The 500 Greeks thereupon applauded the venerable Nagasena and said to King Melinda, Now let your majesty get out of that if you can. But King Melinda said to Nagasena, I have not, Nagasena, spoken a falsehood, for it is independence on the pole, the axle, the wheels, the framework, the flagstaff, etc. There takes place this denomination, chariot, this designation, this conceptual term, a current appellation and a mere name. Nagasena replies, Your Majesty has spoken well about the chariot. It is just so with me. Independence on the 32 parts of the body 
and the five skandhas there takes place this denomination Nagasena, this designation, this conceptual term, a current appellation and a mere name. In ultimate reality, however, this person cannot be apprehended. And this has been said by our sister Vajira when she was face to face with the Buddha. So interestingly, they, the Nagasena mentions Vajira having said this when before the Buddha, but our version has him has her speaking to Mara, so maybe there was another version or a longer dialogue that's, that got lost. And then he quotes, quotes her, where all consistent parts are present, the word chariot is applied. So likewise, where the skandhas are, the term being is commonly used. And then uh, Melinda replies, it is wonderful, Nagasena. It is astonishing, Nagasena. Most brilliantly have these questions been answered. Were the Lord Buddha himself here, he would approve that you have of what you have said. Well spoken, Nagasena. Well spoken. So, so the point is a um, is really what he's saying here. And when they go through this in this elaborate way, which is very much the way of the Pali, the repetition, and the question and the answer is trying to get down to, to what is the essence of chariot. And they, they find that they can't, they can't point to anything that you can grasp hold of. I once heard somebody describe this using, um, using the image of um, a cracker. And I think it, gets, it becomes a little more vivid maybe if we, we talk about this um, in these terms. Um, say, say I, I, it's lunchtime and I ask for some crackers to, to put my hummus on and somebody gives me um, a whole bunch of, of broken bits of cracker, it's the bottom of, the, of the, the, the packet and all that's left are bits of broken cracker, I probably would still consider, consider them to be cracker but they'd be useless for my trying to put my hummus on them. But then if somebody went even further into that packet and, and produced pulverized cracker, I probably wouldn't be very happy at all to be given a, a bunch of bits of flakes. I wouldn't consider that cracker. So somewhere we've crossed the line from what we designate as being cracker to what is not cracker, though the constituent parts are exactly the same. Or if, if I asked for crackers at lunchtime and somebody gave me a bag of flour and a bit of water and some baking soda or baking powder, I would probably be very um, put out by that. I wouldn't consider that to be cracker at all, even though, again, it's, it's the constituent elements. So when, does we, when we look into this, into when does a cracker become not a cracker, we can see how it's simply a designation. It's something, it's a label we put on something. There isn't any kind of essence of, of cracker that we can get at, separate from what it's made out of. It's a concept that we, that we project onto stuff.
and it's the same with um, what we call ourself or our being. It's a concept we project onto the stuff of the uh, perishing collection, the five skandhas. This, um, this image, um, well, a chariot in the, in the um, Melinda Pana comes up as a cart in one of the, the koans. Number eight, the Muonkan, Kechu's cart. Master Getan says to a monk, um, Kechu made a cart whose wheels had a hundred spokes. If you took off the wheels and removed the axle, then what would it be? And Kechu is a sort of a mythical uh, inventor of the, the, the cart and maker of wheels in ancient China, very ancient China. The commentary goes, if you can immediately see through this, your eye will be like a shooting star, your spiritual activity like a flash of lightning. If you can see into what a cart is when you take off its reels and remove its actual axle. So the point, first point in doing, working on this con is to, to look into what it means to take off the wheels and remove the axle. And when what would it be? What would the cart be then? The verse goes, when a wheel spins rapidly, even a master cannot follow it. It moves in all directions, above and below, north, south, east and west. If, um, if the conversation between King Melinda and Nagasena um, emphasizes that, that form is emptiness, then this koan yeah. takes the other side. It em emphasizes emptiness is form. How? You have to look into it for yourself, realize it for yourself. But if you do, if you can, then Mumon says, your eye will be like a shooting star, your f spiritual activity like the flash of lightning, illuminating things. I found a poem that um, uh, fits quite, quite well into this, this discussion of the, of, um, the cart or the chariot, and it's by um, it's by Fernando Pessoa, the great Portuguese poet of the 20th century, who who wrote poems under a whole bunch of different sort of um, uh, personas, and this one he wrote under one of his personas, Alberto uh, Cairo. I may not be pronouncing that correctly, but anyway, it's about a cart. He says. If only my life were an ox cart that creaks down the road in the morning very early and returns by the same road to where it came from in the evening. I wouldn't have to have hopes, just wheels. 
My old age wouldn't have wrinkles or white hair. When I was of no more use, my wheels would be removed, and I'd end up at the bottom of a ditch, broken and overturned. Or I'd been made into something different, and I wouldn't know what I'd been made into. But I'm not an ox cart. I'm different. But exactly how I'm different, no one would ever tell me. We're different, are we, from, from an ox cart, this inanimate thing? Or are we? And how are we different? In what way? Why can't we just die like the ox cart dies? Just, it's skandhas dispersing. Possibly being made into something else, having a new life in this new thing that we have been made into. Vajira ends her, her uh, response to Mara saying, It is suffering that exists, suffering that endures, suffering that disappears. Nothing but suffering exists, nothing but suffering comes to an end. She seems to be echoing here the, the, uh, the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of um, the end of suffering and so forth. Really, really, she's reminding us that uh, it's this question of suffering that is the urgent one. To pull the arrow out. To heal the wounds. When she, she um, finishes her statement, then Mara, death himself, thought, Vajira knows me, and sad and dejected, vanished. It all comes down to recognition. It's the, the, the narrow view of self, the, the contracted, frightened, vulnerable being is released when we see clearly what is going on. Myra vanishes. Suffering dissolves. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <clears throat> 